and welcome to Oh God, What Now, the podcast formerly known as Romaniacs. It's my first time hosting this one, so I'm being jolly careful. <laughs> With us this week is Ben Stewart of Led by Donkeys. Welcome back, Ben. Hi, how you doing, Ross? Very well. You're projecting things onto the Houses of Parliament again, aren't you? Tell us about that. Yes, we got our sofa-sized projector out again. We're lucky enough to get lots of ideas and requests for collaboration from people who DM us on Twitter. And we ended up speaking to a group called COVID-19 Brief Families for Justice. And we were just really deeply affected by their stories and what they were trying to do. So they started out as a Facebook group and they soon grew to be one of, if not the biggest groups of COVID-breathed families. And they're trying to turn their grief into something positive by campaigning for a statutory public inquiry into the handling of the first wave with a rapid review phase that would report back as soon as possible to save lives in the second wave and, God God forbid, a third wave. So they wrote to Johnson and requested a meeting um, where they would outline their proposal. And Johnson ignored four or five of their letters. Then he was cornered on Sky News and promised to meet them. But then, surprise, surprise, he did, he did a U-turn and said he wouldn't. So mate, we made a film with three of the members of the group. And they were talking about the loved ones that they've lost and explaining why they wanted this meeting and this rapid review. And we projected it onto the Houses of Parliament where these grieving families really couldn't be ignored anymore. And it ended up being quite a big deal, actually. The next day they were invited onto you know, national TV and radio to explain their demands and expose Johnson for his cowardice. So, so in that respect, it, you know, it really worked. And we were, we were really happy to help them. So COVID-breathed families for justice do watch the film and, and consider supporting them. This is an interesting one because uh, a few weeks ago, the LSE put out a report saying that we were basically being very bad at commemorating the dead of this pandemic. And we did exactly, we made exactly the same mistake in 1918-19, when there was also no memorial to people who had died. And it, history almost seems to be repeating itself in that way as well. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, the, the numbers are so big that it's difficult to, to grasp them. And we really wanted people to remember that these are actually, you know, individuals with husbands and wives and sons and daughters and people who, you know, really love them. Um, you know, it's up to, what is it, something around 70,000 Britons have died. And it's so dis- difficult to grasp those numbers. I read something this morning, actually, people talking about lots of Americans saying, you know, the death rate of 2% or 1% isn't that high for people who get COVID. And actually, it's about the same as the number of the death rate of uh, American troops who stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, you know. So it's um, huge numbers of people are dying. And, 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 and this was just our effort to, to, to give voice to the people who are bereaved. Naomi Smith is Chief Exec of Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hiya. Have we got a deal yet? Uh, we do not. Well, not, not at the time of recording. Who knows by the time this has gone out. But today we have had two big warnings about no deal. So first we had industry out in force this morning saying that no deal will lead to supply disruptions of the vaccine that we are, of course, all desperately pinning our hopes on. And second, Biden has refreshed his warning about a hard border on the island of Ireland, saying it's just not right. We do not want a guarded border. We want to make sure we've worked too long to get Ireland worked out. The idea of having a border north and south once again being closed is just not right. We've got to keep the border open. So two very stark warnings just today uh, about the dangers of no deal. And in in terms of what we're waiting for, as we've discussed so many times before, until the political actors get involved, the officials like Frost and Barnier can only take us so far. Uh, And we're told that Johnson and von der Leyen will meet perhaps even face to face later this week, now that RPM is out of uh, his second self-isolation, and that they may well be able to then dot the I's and cross the T's on some kind of a deal. Uh, so all eyes really on early next week now for an announcement of a very thin deal with plenty of review clauses attached to the bits that they can't agree on, meaning that they're sort of kicking trickier issues into the long grass. There will be years and years of Brexit content for this podcast to pour over. <laughs> we'll be talking about more about that later. You'll be surprised to hear. David Davis, that dealmaker extraordinaire, uh, took the time <laughs> this week to have a whinge about Vodafone putting oh. him on hold. And that prompted, him, <laughs> that prompted the journalist James Felton to ask him if he'd offered to walk away without a phone. Do you ever feel like complaining about that? <laughs> About the poor service you're getting from your Brexit negotiators, Naomi. I mean, come on, that was the most hilarious Twitter tantrum of the entire week. And I think 
he has since conceded that it was a bit of a storm in a teacup and quite an embarrassing thing for him to do. Uh, but yes, <clears throat> yes, Ros, I do. I do wish we were getting better quality negotiators. And no, I don't think, uh, despite maybe having won a, a mini war with Vodafone, David Davis is the man to do it. Been on hold for four and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, with what terrible music in the background for us to get a headache to. Alexandreou is an actor, writer, singer and commentator. Hello, Alex. Hello. You've been following the Spending Reboot Review today and it's it's pretty sobering stuff, isn't it? Oh, my sins. Yes. Well, I mean, first of all, I... I catch myself being amazed that I consider Rishi Sunak a, a sort of good performer because he shines merely by comparison to the rest of this absurdist cast of a of a cabinet. But really, he's like a sort of leisure centre manager. Um, <laughs> I mean, the economic impact is huge, and it was sobering to see it in black and white, but it is slightly better than expected. So both unemployment figures and the dip in GDP are slightly smaller than had been anticipated. And because it's still ongoing, the crisis sort of still brewing and no one knows exactly what shape recovery will be like, there was a sense to it that it was almost another, yet another holding budget a sort of circling the air looking for a landing spot. What made me a little bit anxious was that at this point, I think he had two routes open to him. He could have grabbed the situation by the scruff of the neck and said, this is our plan for a recovery. This is what we want to do to recover. And I don't mean an imaginative sort of shovel-ready nonsense project, you know, fix up the train station in your town. I mean big stuff that makes a difference to the big picture. Proper pulling the economic lever stuff. Or you can choose to do to mess around with the fringes and send signals with small symbolic measures. And that's what he chose to do. So increasing the defense budget, cutting the foreign aid, aid budget. I mean, they're precisely that they're a drop in the ocean in the overall COVID catastrophe, but they send a message, and that message fits into a pattern that we're seeing in the last few years, you know, of Brexit, of criticizing international structures, of attacking the European Convention on Human Rights, of alienating allies to please Trump, of buying defunct satellite companies and announcing uh, an increase in defence spending to build laser gunboats. You know, the UK was a country that had used its historical position, leveraged its sort of legacy capital, its special relationship, the Commonwealth, etc., to wield a disproportionately huge amount of soft power. And it has basically played one league above where it should have been. Well, it has frittered almost all of that soft power away in the last couple of years and now seems to think it can replace it with hard power, that it can become a sort of global digital player or a military superpower entering those races decades too late. I mean, it's clueless. On this week's podcast, why do we call it chumocracy when it's really common or garden corruption? As the list of Conservative friends receiving lucrative government contracts and handsome payoffs grows, and as the Pretty Patel episode reminds us that rules don't affect the British Brexit inner circle, we ask why the country is tolerating a genteel brand of mafia politics. Plus, we're about to attempt to import millions of COVID vaccine materials, just as we're tearing up our customs relations with Europe. What's going to happen? Could there really be another extension? And in the extended section for Patreon backers at the end of the show, the EU is finally getting tough with the illiberal democracies of Poland and Hungary. Will it work? Before we start, a couple of announcements. Firstly, get your diaries out because we're doing another live Zoom exclusively for Patreon backers. It's on Thursday, 17th of December at 8pm and we'll be joining the bunker for pre-Christmas drinks, a look back in disbelief at 2020 and maybe a Christmas hat or two. Not from me, though, so don't look forward to that. 
It's free to Patreon backers, so check your inbox. And if you're not a backer, you can now sign up in pounds sterling instead of dollars. Search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast to get access to the most wonderful Zoom of the year, plus extra <laughs> perks like our brand new range of merchandise and the new extended family size podcast with an extra bit at the end. And secondly, our annual Christmas market is open for a limited time only with special festive gifts like mugs, T-shirts and yes, oh God, what now face masks. It's open till December the 6th at podmarket.co.uk. UK deliveries guaranteed by Christmas. Over the past few weeks, disturbing stories have emerged about the way public money has been channelled to friends of cabinet ministers and Tory MPs during the pandemic. While we were staying at home in the spring, some people were doing very well out of COVID-19. It was remarkable just how many close connections of the government had expertise in testing, vaccines and PPE, <laughs> exactly when it was in a position to dish out jobs and lucrative contracts. The chair of the vaccine task force, Kate Bingham, is married to a Tory MP who just happened to have been at Eton with Johnson. She funnelled £670,000 to pet PR consultants. Dido Harding, a Tory peer who's also married to a Tory MP, was quickly put in charge of Test and Trace. The consultancy Public First, whose owners used to work for Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings, was given more than half a million pounds worth of work looking at government comms. And another of Cummings' former colleagues runs Hanbury Strategy, which somehow picked up two Covid contracts worth £648,000. The list goes on and on. People are using the word chumocracy, but why are we being so euthanistic about it? Surely this is corruption. Alex, it didn't start with Covid, did it? This government was already showing signs of sleaze. Yeah, I mean... I, I have to say, as a foreigner, I, I have always thought that the process of declaring interest is a sort of ridiculous one, as if by declaring that you're taking money over the table rather than under a table, um, th that makes the conflict of interest somehow go away. So I was always very suspicious of it. But, you know, you had Robert Jenrick and the cash for planning permit scandal. Priti Patel was sacked for lying about nefarious business meetings while on holiday in Israel and got promoted instead in this cabinet. But recently, they've just been rampant. Because it was always thought that it was a disincentive to corruption if you had to declare your interest, isn't it? But it doesn't seem to be that anymore. No, it just seems to sort of sanitise it. Um, the, the Financial Times reports that the UK has spent more than any European country on PPE, has awarded more contracts than any European country for PPE with no tender process, and has had more waste, as in more money spent on unusable PPE, than any other European country. So while individual decisions might be defensible, defensible the, the overall statistics just stink to high heaven. I mean, there's a case of Anthony Page, who quit his role managing a business for Tory peer Michelle Moan, reportedly to set up a new company based on the Isle of Man called PPE MedPro, um, which within weeks had appeared on the government's preferred list and was awarded an 122 million contract by the Tories without tender. I mean, there's nothing that should convince us this, this doesn't need looking into. One of the strange things about this for me is that some journalists have broken these kind of revelations, but it's been left to Jolly on Morm's good law project to do a lot of the digging and expose that sleaze. Why is the press seemingly not very interested in these stories anymore? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I suspect in part because everything is so factional that the few newspapers and TV stations that dare go against the government are dismissed as partisan and occasionally blacklisted, and those who shake their pom-poms for it are not interested. I mean, it's hard to imagine that 11 years ago, it was actually the Telegraph that broke the MP expenses scandal that involved primarily Tory MPs. Would they now? I'm not sure. The other part of it, though, is that the whole year has been so busy news-wise, you know, with the election and, and Johnson and Brexit and COVID and Corbyn and Trump. And these sort of exposés 
they will to a certain extent keep, you know, and they might have more impact if they come fully researched when the news cycle is a little bit quieter. So maybe that's what's going on. I don't know. Ben, do we have a short attention span for sleaze these days? I think that we do. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, we've got relative humdrum of conservative corruption during a pandemic. And, you know, I've been surprised and disappointed by the seeming lack of outrage, frankly, about this chumocracy and, you know, the concomitant failures in PPE and testing. And I'm not sure it's just the failure of the press. You know, the Sunday Times has done good work on this stuff. Yesterday, I read a a column by Melanie Phillips, who actually wrote an excellent column on this. It was really, really surprising. I think it's the first time I've agreed with her in 20 years. (laughs) But it's not been a regular front page story in the Mail and the Sun. And I think that's how you get a kind of eight or nine out of 10 on the Barnard Castle scale when it really, (laughs) really breaks through. And that's when the BBC has to cover it. And that's when you wake up in the morning, you make a coffee and you hear Justin Webb talking about it on the Today programme. And that hasn't happened with this. But also I think people are, I don't know, I think they're relatively forgive. I'm not saying this is right, but I think people are relatively forgiving of the government for perceived mistakes during the frenzied initial reaction to the pandemic. I don't think we should be that forgiving, but I think people maybe think it's it's okay that mistakes were made and we paid crazy prices for masks and gowns, but it's fine as long as we got them. But now we know there's a VIP streaming service to channel contracts to businesses suggested by you know, Tory M- M- MPs and ministers. And when the National Audit Office says that half of the people who sponsored those suggestions weren't written down, you have to think there's something profoundly <laughs> corrupt going on here. And when I, when I read the, the, the original Good Law Project tweet revealing that, I honestly thought, okay, brace, strap in, here we go. But it just didn't really take off. We know stuff can still explode. We know there is still an appetite for for getting angry about scandals and corruption. Like look at Cummings in April. But as I say, I think the public aren't actually convinced that this is corruption. I think there's a chance that they think more that it's cock up in the most challenging circumstances. And I think that's possibly what's going on here. This structure is sort of being formalised, by the way, in the in the review announcement today by Rishi Sunak. So he said that he's uh, dedicating a fund for people to bid for local projects. Oh, yeah, yeah. One of the prerequisites, he says, for him for those projects is that they have the local MP's approval, mm. which seems to me like the preamble to a massive bidding war of corruption for local companies to get their local MPs' attention to approve projects. Naomi. Is it any kind of a defence that these contracts had to be awarded fast to people the government knew they could work closely with and presumably they thought they could rely on? Not always (laughs) fact, but um, that that was, of course, the defence that Boris Johnson was putting across in PMQs on Wednesday that um, Keir Starmer had been pressuring him to get PPE. So he'd got PPE and now he was complaining because we got PPE too fast. And that's that's his defence. Is that in any way convincing? I don't think so, because it appears it didn't speed much, if anything, up anyway. It was, you know, just cronyism fair and square. And, and the National Audit Office report that the others have already mentioned is damning uh, into the <clears throat> government's procurement of PPE, saying it took... It took a long time for it to receive the large volumes of PPE ordered, difficulties with distribution to providers, and many frontline workers reported experiencing shortages of PPE as a result. So it paid, you know, very high prices in unusual market conditions, yes, but it it, it, it just, you know, they were then squandering a lot of stuff that can't be used for its original intended purpose, and we had to wait too long for it. Do you think Cummings' departure will change anything? Look, there was a lot of speculation about his familial links to certain government contractors, and and I haven't done enough investigation to know if any of those stand up or are just 
conspiracy. But what we do know is that he was a fan of outsourcing, is a fan of outsourcing. And of course, with an outsourcing addiction comes the temptation for nepotism, uh, not not least, as Alex has just mentioned in this new Sunak released uh, approach where the local MP is going to (laughs) probably be lobbied by all and sundry in their uh, constituency to win contracts. But I think that's just true of almost all Tories. They bloody love a good outsourcing. So it's probably a bit too early to tell whether we'll see a marked change in cronyism now he's gone. But personally, I don't think leopards change their spots when one member of the pack leaves. And remember the generic scandal of granting planning permission to his mates uh, in the construction sector, saving them tens of millions of pounds by rushing it through before a new developer levy was going to be introduced. And, and you know, just as they made a hefty donation to the Tory party, I'm fairly sure that Jenrick did that under his own steam and, and not under the tutelage of Dominic Cummings. Alex, Johnson decided not to act on the report about Pretty Patel's bullying. You're a former civil servant. How would this kind of thing normally have been dealt with? Well, um, as someone who's represented people as a union rep on bullying claims, I, I understand the area relatively well. The first thing to say is that there's no such thing as unintentional bullying. That's bollocks. Bullying is a set of targeted and long-running behaviours. It doesn't happen by accident. And because the notion that it's up to the bullied to give notice to the bully that they feel targeted is patently ludicrous, it is a behaviour for which, if you forgive me the lawyerly speak, no mens rea is required. So you don't need to show what was in the mind of the bully. Okay, All that needs to be established is that the person picked on feels reasonably that they're picked on. The rest is gravy. So all this stuff about, oh, she didn't mean it, it's, it's nonsense. It's time for Underrated, Overrated, where one of the team tells us who gets too much credit in their field and who doesn't get enough. Ben Stewart, what are your choices this week? For Overrated, I'm going with our old friend, Daniel Hanan. Now... <laughs> Hang on, I hear you say. <laughs> Nobody rates Dan Hanan. Ergo, he can't be overrated, but you would be wrong. As I've said before on this podcast, I have a telefo- uh, Telegraph subscription and I read it every morning so you don't have to. And I can tell you that Dan is most certainly rated over at Telegraph <laughs> Towers and he seems to have an op-ed slot every day. But the person who really, really rates Dan Hanan is, of course, Daniel Hanan. Um, <laughs> so when he comes on the telly, he has this sort of demeanor of someone who thinks that his mere presence his cause for the debate to end and for his opinion to be universally accepted as unequivocally sensible and obviously right. I mean, you know, he, he takes himself very seriously, but he is, um, he is, of course, an idiot. He's a very silly man and he's wrong about almost everything. So, for example, of course, in 2015, he said nobody is talking about threatening our place in the single market, which made you wonder if he, the high priest of Brexit, has actually ever understood Brexit. But more recently... In February this year, he tweeted, and I quote, the coronavirus isn't going to kill you. It really isn't. Why, linking to an essay that he wrote on Conservative Home, where he characterized the concern about coronavirus as alarmism, doom mongering and panic, direct quote. So, of course, you know, since then, something around maybe 70,000 Britons have died from this. And no doubt some of them would have been readers of, of Dan Hanan, you know, and they were given false assurances that they, they need not protect themselves. Anyway, he then proceeded like many fundamentalist libertarians, have a very, very bad pandemic. And he called it wrong almost every turn. He was, of course, a wild proponent of the now discredited Swedish approach. But more recently, last month, in fact, he tweeted about South Dakota in the USA. And South Dakota's governor has been aggressively against even the mildest public health measures to tackle the pandemic. So Hanan in October tweets, quote, South Dakota is the Sweden of the USA in more ways than one. It is the (laughs) control in the experiment. It means no one can claim, but for the lockdowns, things would have been much worse. Thanks, Governor Christy Noam, for sticking to the science and not panicking. Well, South Dakota has the lowest (laughs) rate of mask wearing in the USA. And as of this week, the per capita death rate in South Dakota from COVID is higher than any other nation on earth. And it's higher than any other US state at 28 deaths per million per day. So the the UK is currently about six deaths per million per day on average. If we had South Dakota's death rate, we would be losing 1,900 people a day at the moment, and the US would be losing something like 9,000. So, Dan, South Dakota is the control in the experiment. Dan was wrong. He was wrong again. He was catastrophically wrong. But 
he still appears in the Telegraph, and he will appear on our TV screens very soon, taking himself very seriously indeed. Again, pontificating like he is the human incarnation of truth itself, when he is, in fact, a <laughs> thick he, person. He does, doesn't he? I mean, I was, I was just looking at his Twitter feed, and a couple of days ago, he's, he tweeted a picture of a front of a new British passport, obviously, the dark, the very, very dark blue ones, not the old red ones, and said, liberty is our birthright. We already have a freedom pass. <laughs> and I, you know, I thought freedom pass. I thought a freedom pass was something you got when you were over sixty, and you could get free travel on buses. But <laughs> what does that even oh, mean? God, he's <laughs> such a dick. It, yeah, anyway, he's extremely overrated, and um, and that's why I thought he deserved to um, to appear in this particular slot. Underrated. I've actually gone for mm. the the yin to Dang's yang. That, that was sort of one fifth of Brexit voters are now telling pollsters that they've changed their mind and they no longer think it's a good idea. So we, you know, people on our side, people who are on the what was known as Romaniacs podcast, have perhaps assumed that you know the country is so polarised on this issue that nothing will ever shake people's position. In reality, I think a lot of people, many millions of people, who voted for Brexit are actually reappraising that view seemingly based on, on observed reality. So, you know, the people, you know, really did possess far greater reserves of emotional and practical intelligence than, than for example, for example, Dan, Dan Hanan and 2016. <laughs> I think they have been underrated and um, also underrated, by the way, is Ethiopian food. I went out and got an Ethiopian takeaway in Walthamstow Market yesterday. First time, five quid. I could eat it every day till I die and very good for vegans, Naomi. Here, here. It is superb. It is, isn't it? That injera bread mm. is oh, great. Christ. The yeah. dolls and yeah. The, yeah, great stuff. Well, yeah, that that did a lot for our image as metropolitan. It's <laughs> <laughs> a fiver, Alex. Not you know, good value. Deadlines keep flying by and still we have no deal. EU talks were rumoured to be in the tunnel, but then one of the negotiators caught COVID and Michel Barnier had to self-isolate for a while. The old sticking points of the level playing field and fish remain, with both sides apparently waiting for the other to blink. But with so little time to prepare, even if we get a deal, road hauliers and ports are warning of massive delays. Businesses have been told to get ready. But get ready for what? And could we be on course for another extension? Naomi, the plan is to import stocks of the Pfizer vaccine from Belgium once it becomes available. How would no deal affect that? Oh boy, well look, there there will be many chronic problems associated with no deal if that's what we end up with. But, But this issue is perhaps the most acutely worrying aspect of no deal. The ABPI, that's the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industry, has been all over the news this week warning that extra red tape, extra complexity, extra cost and extra delay is getting in the way of our supply chain at a time when we are trying to deal with COVID. And it's the ABPI that has the challenge of importing multiple different vaccines from multiple sources. And with just 35 odd days to go before the end of the transition, that is obviously extremely stressful for them and has huge implications for us. Now, a dress rehearsal was done earlier this week when a trial of passport checks at French customs ended up leading to five mile tailbacks on the M20 in Kent. And that was just, you know, a mini dress rehearsal. That wasn't the full scale thing that would happen in the event of no deal. So it could easily now to, to, to counter that various people in government and around government have said that, you know, in, in such a, a horrendous crisis as that they would potentially look at flying the vaccine in. But of course you just cannot fit as many vials of a vaccine on a plane as you can onto <laughs> a tanker and, and, and the back pig, lorries and things like no that. No doubt. <laughs> In the light of that, do you expect there to be some sort of extension or is Johnson desperate to avoid that at all costs? I absolutely hate predicting all Brexit related things, as you well know. Uh, But I I think as it stands today, we probably are still expecting a deal that's thinner than a 1990 supermodel being announced after the Boris Johnson von der Leyen meeting, whenever that happens in, in the next few days. But 
that extremely skinny deal will also contain things that we are expecting to be called review clauses on areas that they can't reach agreement on and, and fish may be involved in that. Now, you might say that these review clauses are akin to an industry-specific extension, but of course the government would never admit that or call them that or, or anything else. And, and the idea is that they would be revisited and renegotiated after five to ten years. So long story short, there probably will be extensions, but on a industry-specific basis, and they won't be called extensions. And Alex, is that that presumably is legally possible? Because we were told an extension wasn't possible after June. Well, an extension within the framework of the withdrawal agreement is no longer possible. That's true. I think if you start to think of the EU and the UK as two freely contracting parties, which is actually not a bad way to look at it, anything is possible. It just needs to be part of a new agreement. So as long as they both agree and their constituent members and it's ratified by their democratic processes, so anything they agree is possible, effectively. Has Joe Biden's election affected the government's calculus of whether to compromise and go for a deal? Because we heard rumours when it looked as though Biden would win that there was a lot of panic in Downing Street because they'd been expecting a Trump victory. Well, I hope it has, but I don't think it has. Um, Because to suggest it has would mean to accept that there was some grand design there to start with. And to be honest, I think they're fucking clueless. They have no plan. They decide things on a whim, depending on how much flack they'll take from the press and on the basis of who was the last person to speak to the PM. And the biggest threat at the moment is that we drop off the edge simply because we ran out of time, sort of no deal by accident. Ben, has Johnson concluded that Theresa May was right and no deal is better than a bad deal, do you think? I actually don't think that. I, I, I bow to the judgment of Noam and Alex on this. They have a far better read the, the, than me on what's going on. And certainly the scenario that Naomi lays out sounds entirely credible to me. <laughs> what I'm about to say will no doubt make me look like a fool in, in about five weeks because I am going to make a prediction. I am convinced that Johnson needs and wants a deal and that he's going to make some compromises to get one. You know, there's been a lot of chat about the, the economic impact of Brexit somehow being... Kind of subsumed into the COVID crisis, and therefore the Brexiteers would escape political liability for anything that happens. And I, I just don't buy that. In fact, I think it, you know, it could work in the opposite direction. That you know, next year's profound economic challenges, you know, really har- harm the reputation and standing of the Brexit project, whether they are the fault of Brexit or not. You know, this is a Brexit government pursuing a Brexit policy, and as Labour found out in 2008, 2009, you know, when the music stops and you're in charge, then you get the blame. And you know, some of that economic harm is deemed to have been willfully embraced by Johnson, as in no deal. Then I think the reckoning could be really severe for him and i and i assume he realizes that and you know there's also obviously this, this consensus solidifying that johnson is is an incompetent i think no no deal could really be perceived as an act of incompetence and i and i think he'll worry about that so i think he wants and needs and i think he'll probably get a deal and the kind of deal he could get sounds like the kind of thing that that naomi has just outlined i think he'll do things he said he wouldn't do and, and claim it's a great victory and They'll claim that Brussels blinked and, and Brussels won't really contradict him because they just don't really care about the story that, no, that he don't. weaves. Uh, you know, and his enablers in the press will tell that story too, you know, about a, a, a sort of a, a Churchillian effort that made Johnny Foreign a blink. And we will find it bloody frustrating. And, and it'll be a hard as nails Brexit. But, but I think he'll, he'll, he'll get a deal because I, I think he needs a deal. Do you feel for businesses that are caught in the middle of this impasse, not knowing how and what they can export or import. Yeah, I mean, the ones that didn't fund the Leave campaign, definitely. Um, you know, I, re- I really, well really, really sympathise with small and medium businesses. Um, you know, to worry night and day at the moment about the impact of... I'd never really... I wouldn't have the courage to start a business because I just worry so much about it failing, you know. So to think about those people, those entrepreneurs who are worrying night and day about the impact of, of COVID... You know, to fear a, a call from the bank and then to have this self-imposed national shit show threaten your business, threaten your supply chains and your export strategy. 
and all in the name of Daniel Fucking. And it's, yeah, exactly. you know, so many of them employing people and you know EU citizens and have they applied for their settled status in time? Do they know what they're meant to do? You know, but, you know certain sectors that are so heavily reliant on EU workers and and you know uh, uh, have, as you say, totally you know been decimated by COVID already. I just I'm, I'm with you on this, like the, the fear, how they sleep at night. It's oh, awful, and it's all in the name of Daniel Hanan's imagined concept of free trade. <laughs> you know, people are sitting there thinking, I'm losing my my business for this I, it's genuinely heartbreaking naomi the guardian has a leaked cabinet office briefing which says the uk is at risk of systemic economic crisis apart from covid and brexit what else is going to hit us in the new year oh uh, there could be a new pandemic that volcano in Iceland could go off again. Yeah, um, we could exactly. have extreme winter floods. All bacteria could simultaneously become resistant to all known <coughs> antibiotics. Stop it. Food supply shortages. Uh, water supply shortages are actually listed in that article as things that the government have flagged as, as potential risks. And of course, all of the consequent social disruption, policing and security issues that could come along in the event of that. I know this all sounds hyperbolic, but you know, so so did anyone telling you about a pandemic this time last year, even though it was an absolute known known and most you know developed Western uh, democracies and many democracies in the East and non-democracies in the East who suffered SARS were well ahead of it and, and planned for it far better than we did. And so it, it's there. I'm afraid that they're not that hyperbolic. Um, and uh, many of them are contained within that article, uh, you know, of, of that leaked report from government. And essentially, when you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And our government sure as hell uh, failed to plan for this one. Also, something always happens. I mean, that's the only guarantee. That something happens every year. And I wrote a, a piece last year for Ian Dunt, and uh, I was talking about when you're as assessing risk, basically, how it's the small problems interacting that can really screw you. So it might not even be anything dramatic, but what happens if on the... 30th of December, the new IT system that the government has for the border, what if it's attacked by a nasty malware like the NHS's computer system was two years ago? What fucking happens then? Mm. Well, uh, at Best of Britain, we did lots of freedom of information requests on local authorities uh, over the last couple of years, asking them for their contingency planning for various different scenarios. And almost all of them wrote back to us and, and told us about their risk registers saying, we can just, because of austerity, we can just about now cope with one disruption, but we cannot cope with two. And that has sure as hell been put to the test this year because of COVID. But when a very hard or no-deal Brexit collides with that at the end of this year. And that's before any winter flu, winter floods, or as as Alex says, any kind of, you know, cyber attack. Uh, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be on their knees even more. Uh, and, you know, th this government is not governing and they're not taking any of that seriously. And they need to. We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for our new segment, But Your Emails. Each week, we rake our inbox for questions from our patrons. This week, Ben Atkins asks, what should Labour do about Johnson's deal when it comes back to Parliament? My feeling is that Starmer should tear it a new one, highlighting every aspect that will make the country poorer, less sovereign, less influential, and every way that it fails to meet the promises of 2016. Starmer should whip Labour to abstain on the grounds that it's this deal or no deal, then make sure that Johnson absolutely owns it and wears it like a toilet seat around his <laughs> neck for the rest of his life. <laughs> that is somewhat arresting image, Ben. Yeah. What do the panel think? I agree with Ben Atkins, and I think that Labour should abstain. Um, I agree that to vote against it could go down in history as looking like you backed no deal. So they shouldn't do that, and I can understand why they won't do that. Having said that, I suspect that maybe the SNP might vote against it. You know, they may argue that the only deal that is a good deal is full EU membership. And the only way to get that is if you have an independent Scotland that can rejoin Europe under its own steam. But I think for a Starmer-led Labour Party, I think there is little uh, to gain 
and a lot to lose by backing the deal. Uh, some of the reason, I and mean, there's been you know quite a lot of rumor this week that there was a, a, a you know a, sh- a shadow cabinet meeting uh, where they were split. That there was then a PLP meeting the next day where actually, as I understand it, a majority of the parliamentary party are in favour of abstaining rather than voting for the deal. And the problem with voting for it, as I see it, is that you are then owning it and you are then making it very, very easy for Johnson over the course of the next few years. So anytime Labour is to call out the government and say, you need to be going further on workers' rights. You know, you you mustn't be rolling back the the protections that workers had by virtue of our EU membership, whether on things like working time directives or parental leave and, and those sorts of things. Johnson will just be able to turn around and say to them, but you voted for this deal. You voted for, for this new situation. Whereas I think if they abstain, then they are able to say publicly, well, a deal is, of course, better than no deal, and we wouldn't be seen to be voting against this and therefore endorsing no deal, but be under no illusion that this is not the deal that we would have sought to negotiate and we do not think it is good enough. And there is very, very, very low risk of them doing that and somehow no deal becoming the default because there just simply won't be the numbers of conservative rebels uh, against in that that sort of swivel-eyed loon ERG camp to, to defeat the government on this. Now, Anna Turley, former Labour MP for Redker um, and now chair of the Labour movement for Europe, said it best in her piece for Labour List this week that I'd encourage uh, everyone to go and read when she called on Labour to abstain rather than endorse the deal. And I'll just read you out a quick quote from it. She said, in the longer run, it would mean that Labour also owns the deal and its damaging consequences on our communities, making it difficult to attack the government for its shortcomings, falsehoods and failures as they become clear. It seems extremely short-sighted to sign up to an agreement that we know will harm the British public, just as that harm is about to be revealed in day-to-day life. And in that piece, she's also looked at Keir Starmer's six tests. Now, that's taking you back well over a year back into the the days where we were trying to get Labour to back a second referendum. And Keir Starmer came out with those six tests to say, you know, Labour should only back a deal if it meets these. And she's arguing, well, why wouldn't Labour assess any deal that comes back from Brussels under tucked under Johnson's arm? Um, Why wouldn't we apply those six tests to that now? The final thing I'll, I'll say on this is that the argument that we'll hear put forward by those that are backing, uh, that, that are favouring backing Johnson's deal is that they need to win back the trust of red wall voters. So th- those constituencies across the North and Midlands that switched from Labour to the Conservatives at the last election. I think that's wrong because I poll a lot of those seats. I do lots and lots of focus groups there. And and the the people that switched from Labour to the Conservatives say that they do want a deal, but they want the deal that was promised. And they're not stupid. They're smart enough to know that this deal will fall far short of that. And what I'd also say to Labour is that they're going to be facing elections in Scotland much more uh, soon, much sooner than they'll be facing elections in the red wall seats. And they really do need to think about that. And I think if Labour can be seen to be doing better than expected in the Scottish elections next year, or maybe not as badly as predicted, then that can really put a bit of injection uh, into their trajectory and and give Starmer the boost that he needs. And as I understand it, the the PLP members who are in favour of abstaining rather than backing the deal. Um, uh, uh, many of them are not the ones who backed a second referendum. Some of them were, you know, were, were representing leave seats and, and felt that they had to uphold that. But they are saying that they know that siding with Johnson isn't going to win back uh, voters in those red wall seats because Labour would just need to be offering something very different. So siding with Johnson isn't doing that. Yeah, I think I think Ben Atkins has it about right, actually, and 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 I think Naomi's got it about right um, as well. When you're kind of weighing up all these sort of different political calculations, and it's not easy for Starmer. It's really not easy. I mean, all I'd say is that there is a political cost to abstaining on anything, you know, particularly if you're trying to establish yourself as a, as a strong leader. So you know, out there in the real world, it's very easily portrayed as fence sitting, and to some extent, it can it can sometimes be the worst of all worlds. In this case, however. You know, there are no easy options for Starmer. I think this is probably the least worst option. I definitely think, you know, voting for the deal 
I've heard it said would be some kind of kind of clause four moment in the red wall seats, you know, a potent signal that Labour has changed to, you know, direct a message directed at the voters they, they lost in December last year. I don't think, I just don't think that works. Um, and I don't think that would be enough to bring people over. And I don't think it would be regarded as in any way authentic. And it would, of course, carry all of the dangers that, 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 that you, Ros and Naomi, have articulated there about owning a hard Brexit and and having to own everything that happens in 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 you know in the coming years. I've also heard it said, by the way, that there's no way that Labour could ever own any part of Brexit. That it, that too much has happened. You know, too much water has passed under the bridge, that this is a wholly owned project of this Conservative Party. But in reality, I think if Labour dip their hands into the blood to bring about hunting metaphor, um, then uh, I think that that poses profound political dangers to them in the coming years. And Johnson's going to be defined by the pandemic and by Brexit um, or and whatever other disaster befalls us, as as you just explained the, the potentials to us a moment ago, Naomi. But, but, you know, because of that, I think it's really, really important that Labour give themselves the opportunity to be very, very strong critics of what unfolds next. So no easy options, but you look at it and you think probably abstaining is the best one. Um, I'm not as convinced as Naomi and Ben. Um, I, I mean, I agree there are no easy options, but it's it's almost like the what the trolley problem, you know, the the ethical dilemma, the thought experiment, the Judith Jarvis Thompson thing that there's a tram hurtling down a track, and it it will kill five people unless you pull a lever in which case it will change trajectory and kill only one person. And and the idea is that inaction is also an active choice. I, I think Ben is right in the sense that abstaining would play into the, the Tory rhetoric of uh, Starmer being indecisive and on the fence on all issues and Captain Hindsight and you know, always knowing better after the event. On the other hand, could they vote for a deal that came back? At that stage, would you want no deal or would you want a deal however thin it came back? I think you'd want a deal however thin it came back. So I have a a slight problem with someone wanting outcome A but refusing to back outcome A because they will be co-owning it down the line. Um, I don't. I think there are other ways to make your objections known, to make your dissenting judgment um, very uh, uh, prominent, um, but I think any thin deal is better than a no deal. I, you know, so... Theresa May is wrong on that because actually even the thinnest of deals provides a structure. It provides a legal framework within which you can then go on to negotiate other stuff and tack them on. So actually the difference between no deal and a deal, however thin, is huge. How do you feel about a free vote? What if they didn't whip at all and just let each of the MPs make up their own mind? I, I think I think that would make him look even more indecisive. So, I mean, you're right. There are no easy options here. Um, the remainder in me would like them to vote against. The politician in me would like them to abstain. The the practical person would want them to back the option that they actually want to become. Um, reality and that would be a deal as thin as it is the pragmatist in me would say that nicola sturgeon and boris johnson will rub their hands with glee if labor mps follow tory mps into the voting lobby mm. yeah i mean like i said it's a shit it is situ- it's a very, it's diff- a very difficult situation <laughs> all, all i'm trying to suggest is that abstaining is also an action and we saw how it worked out, for instance, on the welfare bill. Labour were whacked over the head for years for abstaining on the welfare bill. It wasn't something that 
in some way avoided them dipping their blood in the deal. It merely allowed for two different interpretations. So the people who wanted to condemn them for not going against the deal interpreted their abstention as supporting it. And the people who wanted to condemn them for not being strong enough on matters of um, benefit fraud and all of that used it as uh, uh, evidence of that. So, you know, abstaining provides a blank slate for your critics on both sides to fill that vacuum with their interpretation. So I, I do think it has its own dangers. Well, what we do know about uh, Keir Starmer is he is anxious not to be seen as a Remainer. So perhaps, as you say, Alex, that will inform his final decision. And that's the show. Thanks once again to Naomi. Thanks, Ros, and congratulations on anchoring your first Oh God, What Now? I've, I've been jolly careful, haven't You've been I? I've been jolly careful. <laughs> Alex. Thank you for having me as always. And Ben. Yeah, thanks for having me as well. And, and congratulations on the um, on the relaunch. It's been it's been a more successful relaunch than Nigel Farage's party political career that happened at about the same time. <laughs> and we are going on to get more and more supporters while um, his project is um, satisfyingly pedestrian at the moment. If you'd like to hear an extra bit of chat from the panel, you can back us on Patreon to hear our bonus discussion. This week, we're examining the EU's prolonged battle with Poland and Hungary, whose populist governments continue thumbing their noses at the end rule of law. And don't forget our Christmas market. We've got brand new merch for Oh God, What Now? The Bunker and Classics Romaniacs gear in case you've missed out. All at podmarket.co.uk. Now it's time for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Many thanks from me to Raymond Owens, Celia and Hugh Brace. Hello and thank you from me to Charlie, Jerry, Paddy and Rufus, Colin Murphy and Caroline Ludlow. And a huge thanks from me to Bob in Amsterdam, Andrew Emery and Richard Simpson. And finally, thank you to Philippe M, Deirdre Daly and John Craven and his news round. We'll see you next week. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Ross Taylor with Alex Andreu, Naomi Smith and Ben Stewart. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Oh God, What Now? extra bit for Patreon backers. This week, we've got a serious topic. Hungary and Poland joined the EU in 2004, along with eight other countries. The enlargement was initially seen as a triumph. It would strengthen the union and reduce Russia's influence. But in the past decade, the countries have been dismantling the liberal institutions the EU demanded they set up in order to join, packing the courts with favoured judges, making it impossible for independent media to survive, adopting hardline policies on immigration and undermining LGBT rights. The EU has issued various threats over the years, but to no avail, and now the countries are threatening to veto the EU budget unless a rule of law requirement is dropped. Alex, are Poland and Hungary's cultures, as some people say, fundamentally incompatible with EU membership, or is it that they have been hijacked by authoritarian leaders? I I mean, I don't know Hungarian and Polish cultures so well as to pronounce um, that they are in their totality incompatible with EU membership. I, I don't think they are. I don't think any culture is. I do think that, and I say this with my experience from Greece, I think that they they were very monocultural societies. Um, so I, I, I think there were societies where they didn't really have a huge amount of either religious minorities or race, race minorities, etc., etc. And l- like Greece, what, what I observed when, you know, the borders were opened between Greece and Albania to a certain extent for migrant labor, is that suddenly I saw Greece, a, a, a country which had a reputation for being incredibly anti-racist, standing against apartheid, or the record was impeccable, but it was impeccable in theory only.
You've just heard a taster of the new extended 12-inch edition of Oh God, What Now? Available exclusively to our Patreon backers. If you want to hear the rest, and of course you do, then search Patreon Oh God, What Now? podcast, sign up, and you'll get access immediately. We hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you next week.